I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the text of each book of scripture to determine its focus so that we can understand it better. This week, we begin the book of Exodus, the second book of the Torah, and we're going to be in this book for the next 32 weeks. Now, this means that we will spend a little over half as long on Exodus as we spent on Genesis. And this means that, for the most part, the upcoming Parshas in the book of Exodus are going to be a bit longer than they were in Genesis. Now, Exodus itself is an odd book. If we examine it from a modern perspective, as the first half of the book is one of the most epic and memorable stories in all of Scripture. The first part of the book has been the subject of numerous movies, books, television episodes, and more. And this first half contains one of the most memorable moments in all of Scripture, as the redemption from Egypt is perhaps the most recalled event throughout the remainder of Scripture, except for perhaps the act of creation itself, as well as being one of the most recalled events in the history of religion. So while most people, even in popular cultures, know the basic flow of the first half of the book of Exodus, the fact is that a majority of people who call themselves Christians can't even recall what occurs in the second half of the book. Now, Exodus is 40 chapters long, and it's in chapter 20 that the narrative of Exodus will end and the legal code of God will begin. And it's here that most simply stop reading. The fact is we like the narrative, especially the epic nature of the early narrative portions of the book. But the legal code and specifications for building of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle itself bores us half to death. Why do we need to know about the construction of the ancient tent that's no longer in use? In fact, this tent was only used for around 400 years before it was replaced by Solomon's temple. Now, the Exodus itself, it's wonderful, it's exciting, it's foundational, it teaches us about redemption and salvation, it gives us the reasons for Pesach and Matzah, which is Passover and unleavened bread. It teaches us in our modern age of the sacrifice of our Messiah, who, in the same way that the Passover lamb protected the people of Egypt from the angel of death, we too are protected from death through his blood. But the rest of it, Oh, who has time for that? Well, I'm going to tell you now that we're going to make time for that. and Because the second part of the book of Exodus is just as important as the first part of the book. and Because this book, it has one consistent theme from beginning to end that is greater than the narrative events of the Exodus from Egypt. And unfortunately, it's the English name that primes us. 
Uh, we go to the book looking for the entire thing to be the story of the Exodus. And as soon as the story ends, well, it's no longer about the Exodus, so why bother continue reading? But in the Hebrew, the Hebrew name of the book is not the same as the English name of the book. The Hebrew name of this book is Shemot, and that word is a plural, and it simply means names. The Hebrew name is derived from the second word in the Hebrew of the book. It begins with Ve'ele Shemot. These are the names. So as we go through this book, I hope you'll come to the realization that this is a much better name for this book than the name of Exodus. Because the name of the second book of the Torah teaches us what to look for in this book. It's a, it's a clue that points us to the unified theme that runs the entire length and breadth of the book rather than simply explaining the first half. You see, Hebrew is a language that's different than English. <gasps> what? I know, right? But the word name in Hebrew, it does not simply mean a person or a thing's moniker, or, or the combination of syllables that are used to identify one entity from another. Now, this is usually what we think of when we hear the word name in English. But even in English, this word name is used in a way that's similar to the Hebrew word. So in the Hebrew, what does the word name mean? Well, if you look at a concordance, it will tell you that the word means not just a name or a word that identifies something. It will also define this word as reputation, fame, glory, memorial, or monument. If you continue to Strong's exhaustive concordance, it says this. It's a primitive word, perhaps from H7760, sum. Uh, assume meaning to place, appoint, or set. And it's through the idea of definite and conspicuous position. Uh, it's an appellation as a mark of a memorial of individuality, or by implication, it's honor, authority, character, base, fame, renown, or report. Uh, literally, it's an appellation or a mark of individuality. Uh, what we think of when we use the word name, but by implication, it means honor, authority, character, fame, renown, and report. So when we read the word name in Hebrew, we should not only think of what the person is called by others as their mark of individuality, but we also have to incorporate these other ideas of honor, authority, fame, renown, report, reputation, and character. Now, this should not be a huge stretch for us, as the word name in English can also mean these things. For example, he has a good name, or they have a bad name, speaking of a reputation of a person or a group. Or, he has made a name for himself, speaking of someone's fame. Uh, one of the most detested names in history, speaking of a report or renown. In the, or stop, in the name of the law, speaking of the authority of the law. You get the idea. If we read that we are to call on the name of God, and we think that this simply means to speak a certain set of syllables as the personal identifier of God, then we are missing out on the fullness of what that passage means. So let's not limit our thinking in this way, because name is so much more than that. And this is, in fact, the theme that runs from one end to the other of the second book of the Torah. Because this book is more than simply a story of people being freed from slavery. This book is a revelation to mankind of the name of the God of Israel. In every meaning that this word has, both specifically and by implication. 
This book teaches us the nature of God, his character, his authority, his memorial, his mention, his fame, his glory, and his honor. It should be no wonder that this event, the event of the Exodus, is looked back on by later generations as the one that defines the nation and the God that we serve. Because from one end to the other, this is what's on display for us in this book. Who is this God that we serve? The narrative of the Exodus it teaches us this just as much as the legal code. The legal code teaches us just as much as the instructions for his house. The instructions for the house teach us just as much about him as the instructions for the clothing of those who serve him and who serve in his place. Every little bit of this book of names is an exploration of the great and holy and awesome name of our creator, our redeemer, our savior, our provider, our banner, and our God. And so that is what we'll be examining for the next 32 weeks. The exciting narratives are just as important as the boring instructions. And so with this in mind, let's turn to these first two chapters of the book of Exodus, or the book of names, and let's read the beginning of this awesome text. Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Mitzrayim with Yaakov, each one with his household, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all those who were descendants of Yaakov were seventy beings, as Yosef was already in Mitzrayim. And Yosef died and all his brothers and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased very much, multiplied and became very strong, and the land was filled with them. Then a new sovereign arose over Mitzrayim, who did not know Yosef. And he said to his people, See, the people of the children of Israel are more and stronger than we. Come, let us act wisely towards them, lest they increase, and it shall be when fighting befalls us that they shall join our enemies and fight against us and shall go out of the land. So they set slave masters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Pitom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they increased and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. And the Mitzrites made the children of Israel serve with harshness, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, all their work which they made them do was with harshness. Then the sovereign of Mitzrayim spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you deliver the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall put them to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared Elohim, and did not do as the sovereign of Mitzrayim commanded them, and kept the male children alive. So the sovereign of Mitzrayim called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and kept the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Mitzrayim women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. So Elohim was good to the midwives, and the people increased and became very numerous. And it came to be, because the midwives feared Elohim, that he provided households for them. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Throw every son who is born into the river, and keep alive every daughter. And a man of the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was a lovely child, and she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took an ark of wicker for him, and coated it with tar and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the edge of the river. 
and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her young women were walking by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her female servants to get it, and opened it, and saw the child, and see, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the children of the Hebrews. And his sister called to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the young woman went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. Then I shall pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she called his name Moshe, saying, Because I have drawn him out of the water. And in those days it came to be, when Moshe was grown, that he went out to his brothers and looked at their burdens, and he saw a Mitzrayim striking a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he turned this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he struck the Mitzrayim and hid him in the sand. And he went out the second day and saw two Hebrew men fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why do you strike your neighbor? And he said, Who made you head and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Mitzrayim? And Moshe feared and said, Truly, the matter is known. And Pharaoh heard of this matter, and he sought to kill Moshe. But Moshe fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. And then Moshe stood up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. But they came to Reuel, their father, and he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, A Mitzrayim rescued us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why did you leave the man? Call him and let him eat bread. And Moshe agreed to dwell with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moshe. And he bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have become a sojourner in a foreign land. And it came to be after these many days that the sovereign of Mitzrayim died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the slavery, and they cried out, and their cry came up to Elohim because of the slavery. And Elohim heard their groaning, and Elohim remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Yitzhak, and with Yaakov. And Elohim looked on the children of Israel, and Elohim knew. So this week as we begin the book of Exodus, and this exploration of God's name in its fullest sense of the word, the book begins with a setup. This setup includes the connection to the past of Israel at this time. We just read the story of the sons of Jacob settling in this green and fertile land and the good graces of the inhabitants of the land. And one of the things that we'll find if we take our time with the first chapters of Exodus, we'll find that there are several ideas contained in this first chapter that are masked by the English. Some of these instances can serve to open up this chapter a bit more to our understanding of what the text is getting at. So this week, for at least part of this lesson, we're going to be examining some of these words to see if understanding them and their original language can help us to get a clear picture of what is occurring in this opening chapter. So as the book of Exodus opens, it reminds us of the sons of Israel that settled in the land of Egypt. It connects us back to the events at the end of the book of Genesis. And we're then told that this story begins after Joseph died and all of that generation died. And it tells us that Israel was fruitful and grew mightily. Now, in the midst of that, just after it says they were fruitful, it says that they increased. Now, this word is interesting, as it's only ever applied to humans in this one verse. This word, sharats, it appears 14 times in the Tanakh, or the Old Testament. And every other time, it's used in connection to animals. 
In Genesis 1, 20 and 21, it refers to swarming creatures of the seas. Five times in Leviticus 11, it's used to refer to the swarming creatures that are unclean to eat. And even later, in Exodus 8, verse 3, it's used to describe the frogs as they swarm the land as part of the second plague. So Israel increased in the land, and they swarmed the land, as if they too were a plague that had been leashed upon the land of Egypt. Now, I find it highly likely that this new pharaoh who rose to power was no longer the friendly Semite Hyksos kings, but rather this pharaoh was once again an Egyptian, and he had a fear of what had occurred previously as the Hyksos had taken over Egypt, occurring again. And so this new pharaoh, he has this racial hatred towards Semites. He sees them as animals. They're detestable. They're a scourge and a plague upon his pristine land. And if they're allowed to continue to increase in this way, they will become more powerful than him. And the fear is deeply seated that Egypt will again be ruled over by foreigners. And so he oppresses Israel. Now, as this oppression or persecution begins, it begins slowly, and it's through this slow encroachment that he enslaves Israel. So, in verse 11, he sets up what in most translations is slave masters. But the thing is, is that the word mas has more to do with tribute, levies, imposed taxes than it does with anything else. So, he sets up not slave masters, but tribute or levy masters, in essence, tax collectors. If we understand it this way, the Pharaoh increased taxes on Israel to the point of them being oppressive, so oppressive that they had no option but to either work constantly to keep up or to sell themselves into bond service to pay off their debts. And so it is that Israel begins to serve in harshness. The work that would have been a joy and a pleasure becomes harsh and oppressive as more and more of their produce goes to support others who live in relative ease and comfort. And this harshness, it's accomplished through hard labor. And Pharaoh used them, the Hebrews, to build several cities, namely Pithom and Ramses. Now we have a significant amount of evidence to suggest that these were not the names of the cities at the time that these events occurred. If you want more information on this, watch the documentary Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. It goes into a really deep exploration of the timeline of all of this, and I think he nails it on the head. So, After their enslavement, the king of Egypt begins this new program, a program of depopulation of the Hebrews. And his first move is to speak to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. In verse 16, it speaks of the Hebrew women being on the birth stools, and if the child is a son, kill it, and if it's a daughter, let it live. And we usually read this and we imagine the babies being born and then killed immediately upon birth because of this word, birth stools. And this is a common understanding of this, even in most scholarly circles, and has been for centuries. There's an issue here, though. The Hebrew word used in this verse is not birth stool, but rather potter's wheel, havnaim. Now, this word that's only used two times in Scripture, here in Exodus 1 and in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 3, where it says, So I went down to the potter's house and saw him doing a piece of work on the wheel. Upon the wheel. This is the same word. In fact, it's the same phrase for the women upon the birth stools. Now, this understanding of the word, it can change our entire perspective of what's going on here, especially if we incorporate a bit of Egyptian mythology and some recent archaeology. 
In ancient Egypt, we have ample documentation that they believed the humans were formed by the god Khnum. This was the god of the Nile. and This god was seen as the giver of life, since all life depended on the Nile in Egypt. And the Nile contained a lot of clay and silt. Because of this, it was thought that as babies were in utero, they were said to be on the potter's wheel, the place of being formed by the Egyptian giver of life. But wait, if we understand that this is speaking of a prenatal visit by the midwives while the babies were upon the potter's wheel, how could they possibly tell the gender of the baby? And yes, there are only two genders before the baby was born. Now, this is only a recent ability due to the science of ultrasound, right? That's how we figure out what the the gender of a baby is. And this is where we have another bit of archaeology that comes into play. In the University of Copenhagen, they have a large collection of unpublished ancient Egyptian documents known as the Papyrus Collection. And according to these ancient documents, the gender of an unborn child could be determined by having the woman urinate on a bag of barley seed and wheat seed. If the barley sprouted first, it was a boy. If the wheat sprouted first, it was a girl. Now, this might seem to be a bit arbitrary, but a recent study has revealed that this method of determination was accurate up to 70% of the time. Ancient Egyptians could tell in a prenatal visit what the sex of the child would be with up to 70% accuracy. Add to this, We have ample evidence in the same set of documents as well as others of various potions that could be administered to women to cause a baby to die before birth that were well known in ancient Egypt. Pharaoh was not asking the midwives to practice infanticide as we like to, uh, as we like to imagine it. And then when they failed, he responds with an order for infanticide. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It seems as though what he's asking the midwives to do is to abort the children before they were born. And this action could be easily hidden, and no one needed to be the wiser. Simply prescribe a certain potion to the mothers that were having boys, and what do you know? The baby miscarried. No need to arouse further suspicion by outright killing the babies. Simply cause them to be aborted. Well, the midwives, they fear God. They don't want to take part in this travesty. And so it is that the midwives, they relate that the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They give birth before the draft can be given, and so the children continue to live. The midwives here, they seem to be playing on Pharaoh's prejudices to make it seem as if there is, in fact, a difference between Egyptians and Hebrews. The Hebrews? Well, the Hebrews, they're like animals after all, right? simply makes sense that they would give birth like animals, quickly, and without a midwife. And so it's only after this program fails that the pressure from Pharaoh then increases, and he gives the command to destroy the male infants. This communal command to his entire nation to commit infanticide in order to weaken Israel. Now, it's also because of their unwillingness to participate in killing the unborn that these two women then receive a name for themselves and are given houses. You see this? The women did something amazing and their names are recorded in the book of names. All right, so here's another indicator that 
looking at this book as a book of names is more accurate than just a simple story of the Exodus. Now, this is a horrific circumstance of what was occurring. This is government oppression of the worst sort. This is a government that's ruled by prejudice and willing to go to any measure to retain power. And in the midst of this, they introduce a government policy of administering medicine that will destroy the children of Israel. And it's into this situation that we begin to read of an individual family that's living in the midst of this persecution. A man of the house of Levi and a daughter of Levi. They marry. The woman conceives and bears a son into this world of heartache. Now, we will soon discover that Moses had an older brother, a brother that was alive. And so we can determine that this latest travesty of murder is something that could only have begun very shortly before the birth of Moses. Now, this child was born, and for three months he was hidden away until he could be hidden no more. And so it is that this boy was put into an ark. Now, the word here is teba. And this word appears 28 times in scripture, but only in two places. Once is in the story of Noah, and the second is in this story. And this is the same word for the craft that Noah built, and he coated his vessel with tar and pitch, as does the family of this young boy. And they take the boy, they put him in his ark, and they place him in the Nile. Now, this was the thing that was to be done anyway at the king's command. The boys were to be put into the Nile. But this time, Rather than the boy being tossed in with no assistance and ensured death, this boy was placed with free will of his parents, but surrounded by a life-saving vessel of long ago. Now, we're all familiar with the story. Pharaoh's daughter goes out to the river to wash, discovers the child in the reeds, and she has compassion on him, even though she immediately recognizes him as a Hebrew. Now, Miriam, Moses' sister, who had stayed behind to watch the basket, she then approaches and asks if she should go and get a Hebrew woman to nurse him. And with an affirmative response from the princess, Miriam, the Alma, runs off and gathers her own mother to nurse the boy. And the boy grows up in the house of Pharaoh, and he is named Moses. Now, in the Hebrew, this name means to draw out or to pull or bring something out. And seeing as this is the book of names, this name is indeed significant as that becomes the destiny of the man, Moshe. He is the one that is used to draw Israel out of Egypt, to draw Israel out of slavery, to literally draw the entire nation of Israel out of the water of the Sea of Reeds. He enters the water first. He was caused to pass through, and he was brought out the other side because of the compassion of a person of great power. Now, this is a foreshadowing of what is to come later in the book. And so it is that Moses, he grows up in the foreign land of the oppressor. And one day he goes out among his brothers, and he witnesses an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, there's an interesting congruence in the text here. What was it that happened when Moses was in danger of being killed by the Egyptians? Well, he's seen by an Egyptian and shown compassion and saved. And so now Moses, he is out among his brothers in the form of an Egyptian. And he too sees a Hebrew that's being mistreated by an Egyptian. And he too has compassion on the Hebrew. So Moses checks around him. And when he sees that the coast is clear, Moses in his compassion for his Hebrew brother slays the oppressor from the nations. 
And the next day, Moses returns to Wakaman and his brothers, and he sees two of them struggling together, and he asks about it. And it's revealed here to him that his secret is known. Even Pharaoh knows of the secret, and Pharaoh also seeks to kill him. And so now Moses, as a fugitive, runs away and exiles himself to the east, to Midian. He gets to Midian, and he sits by a well. As he's there, the seven daughters of the priest of Midian, they come to the well to fill the troughs to water their animals. The local shepherds, though, they take the water and the troughs for themselves. Moses left a land where the weak had to labor, exploited by the strong. And so as he comes into Midian, this is exactly what he's witnessing once again. The weak are having their labor exploited by the strong. And so Moses stands up and he rescues the women from their oppressors. Now, Reuel, uh, a name which means simply friend of God, this priest of Midian, he hears of this, and he calls Moses to his house, and as he dwells there, he is given Zipporah, a name which means bird, who is the daughter of this priest of Midian to be his wife. And this daughter, she bears Moses a son, and he is named Gershom. And we usually miss this, but this name is in fact a family name. Gershon was a son of Levi, and Moses himself is a son of Levi, but of a different branch of the family. Moses is a descendant of Kahat. So not only is Moses giving his son a fitting name, but he's naming his son after his great uncle. But this boy is named for Moses' new status as well, as a Ger, or a friendly foreigner. And we'll, we'll get into that later in chapter 12. And once again, in this book of names, the name has significant meaning. The name Moses means to pull, to draw, to bring something out. And the name Gershom means to drive out, to cast away, to expel, or to divorce. Now, both Moses and Gershom have names of significance. One to draw out or rescue, and the other to drive or to force out. Both of these things that have occurred to Moses in the second chapter of Exodus. And Moses, Moses lives in Midian for a long time. Many years later, the king of Egypt, he dies. And the children of Israel, they cry out in their oppression and their slavery. And their cry it comes up before God. And Elohim has four responses to this cry. One, he hears the moaning. He shamas their cries. Now, when we read or we see the word hear or listen in scripture, we have to remember that this is an action-oriented word. You cannot hear without doing something. So God heard the cry to do something about it. And this is the same just as we are told to Shema, the commands of God. The second thing we read is that he remembers his covenant. He, Zachar, the covenant. Now, In English, we associate the idea of remembering with this thought that if one is remembering, then he must have previously forgotten. This can cause some to stumble as it would appear as if God had previously forgotten about the Hebrews, or even worse, had forgotten his covenant, and only now does he remember. But once again, our passive language does us a disservice, just as it does with the word here. In Hebrew, A person can call to mind something that's gone before, but until they act upon that thing, they have not remembered it. In Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that all of this would happen, 
as part of the promise was a time frame of when Israel would be brought out of Egypt. And with these two passages in congruence, we can recognize that God hadn't forgotten of this unspoken corollary to his remembering, but rather that his remembering was a sign of him getting ready to act, that the time frame that was set before had finally arrived. Now, the tzitzit, the, the tassels that are worn on the corners of your garments, they are to be a reminder of the commands of God, where if you look at them and think about them, you'll not only think about what God's commands were, but then do them. If you look at them and you don't do what those call to mind, you have not remembered. Because remembering in the Hebrew sense, it drives one to action based on a memory of past events. The third thing that happens is that God looked on the children of Israel. Once again, no passive verbs. Allowing something into your eyeballs is not the same as seeing in the Hebrew. If you watch a YouTube tutorial video on something, but then you never once use that information, in the Hebrew mindset, you didn't see the video. And the same way, if you look out your car window as you're driving, and there's a man standing on the side of the road begging for money, and you do not do anything towards the man, you have not seen that man in his poverty. It's only once you take action that you can be said that you saw the man, that you saw him, and you did something about it. And so it is that God saw the plight of Israel, and he begins the action of fixing it. And the fourth thing that we read is that God knew. Once again, knowing does not mean to simply have facts stored in your head. Knowing, as we discussed last week, is to have experience, to participate, and to incorporate something into your being. You can know every move it would take to build a house, but if you have never actually built a house, you do not know how to build a house, in the Hebrew sense of the word. God knew their oppression. Now, this is significant. How could God possibly know their oppression in this way? He's seated on the throne in the heavens. And at this point, we've seen very little of God other than him choosing and directing the flow of events for Abraham and his family. How could he have an intimate experience with oppression of Egypt? Unless, unless the God of creation is outside of space and time. Unless he experiences all times at the same time, and what we call history and future are simply now for him. If this is the case, then the experience of when Yeshua was being oppressed and destroyed, it would still very much be in mind to him as he was going through that experience in the same now, in his view, as we're reading about even here in Scripture. Because you see, even here, this early in Scripture, God was intimately acquainted with suffering with being oppressed and re receiving persecution at the hands of foreigners. I mean, truly, he knows even our sufferings, and he's acquainted with our grief. And he has, he always has, from before the foundation of the world. And so it is that chapter 2 and our Parsha end. And it's here that the transition from the purpose of Genesis to the purpose of Exodus begins. Now, there's several things that we can pick out of this chapter that we can learn more from, but I want to highlight two specifically. First, there seems to be a lot of allusions back to the book of Genesis in these first few chapters. 
It's almost as if the entire book of Genesis is being summed up at the beginning of Exodus before getting to the purpose of the book. And if we pay close attention to the words and the themes being explored in these first few chapters, we catch these few glimpses of this throughout. And it starts with the description of Israel in the midst of Egypt. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Then this king of the land, this man in the role of Cain, he looks at Israel and their growth and he is frightened that they might overcome him. And so he chooses against the tree of life and chooses to deal out death to Israel. He then forces them to build cities and to make their labor difficult with brick and mortar, reminding us of the sons of Cain who built cities in the later episode of the Tower of Babel, as they're forced to build cities to make Pharaoh great with the technology of brick and mortar. And so Pharaoh has two women who he speaks to, and he tells them of his tendency to kill men who could potentially wound or harm him, very similar to the song that Lemech sings to his own wives. And he devises a way to bring death to Israel. And the father is given a command to sacrifice his son, and the father lets go of his son and gives him up in the sacrifice that has been commanded as an echo of the Akedah. And so a righteous son is placed in an ark covered with pitch. This man is placed in the water that's claiming the lives of all of his peers, recalling the ordeal of Noah. And this ark brings him to a place of life, a new world in which to thrive. And the son is raised, and a time comes when he kills another, and he is sent into exile, away from his family, who seeks to kill him in echoes of Jacob and Esau. He flees to the east, and he comes upon a well, and at the well he waters a woman's sheep, and ends up with her as a wife, as Jacob did. He's given a wife in exile, and this wife is the daughter of a priest and a great priest of a foreign land that he has found succor in, and relief, very similar to Joseph. And he bears a son who is a stranger, similar to the prophecy over Ephraim. And God sees the hardship of his people, and he chooses a savior to bring them out of the land of death and into a land of great abundance and continuation of the story of Joseph. And in this way, we find these first two chapters of Exodus, a mashup of Genesis, not a full retelling or even an orderly telling. But throughout, there are these repeated themes and ideas, these niggling pointers back to Genesis, as if the entire story of Genesis is being wrapped up in the life of Moses before we even begin to examine the name of God that's present in this book. And this week, that discussion is entered into in the same way as we begin to explore the character of God as summed up in the last two verses of chapter 2. And it's here that the purpose of Exodus begins, and we begin to be told in depth the name of this God that we serve. And the first thing that we're told of God is that he hears the cry of his children in persecution. He remembers his covenant. He sees their hardship, and he knows their plight. Now, this is very comforting, as it means that we have an advocate that will work for us when the world closes in and begins to try to get rid of us. And that advocate it's the God of creation himself. And this is something that we're told on numerous occasions throughout the Bible. Psalm nine twelve. For he remembers the seekers of bloodshed, and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm thirty four seventeen. The righteous cried out, and Adonai heard, and delivered them out of all their distress. Psalm one nineteen one forty six. I have called upon you. Save me, that I might guard your witnesses. Exodus twenty two twenty six 26-27 
If you take your neighbor's garment as a pledge at all, you are to return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What does he sleep in? And it shall be that when he cries to me, I shall hear and show favor. 1 Samuel 9.16 At this time tomorrow I shall send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him leader over my people Israel, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Job 34.28 So as to cause the cry of the poor to come to him, for he hears the cry of the afflicted. And Romans 8.26 And in the same way the Spirit does help in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself pleads our cause for us with groanings unutterable. God hears the cry of the righteous afflicted, of those who are his. And if we are his, he hears us in our distress. He comforts us. He knows. He remembers. And he acts. Will he always deliver us? As a people, yes. As individuals, not always, no. Let's not forget that for the entire time that Moses was in the wilderness watching sheep, the infants of Israel were being slaughtered wholesale. The people were being oppressed and persecuted. They were being driven into subjection. There were many who died in this situation without ever seeing the salvation that God had planned for his people. They died in persecution. They died in trouble and hardship. And we're promised that this will continue for the believers of the God of Israel. Luke 21, 23 through 25 says, And woe to those who are pregnant and those nursing children in those days, for there shall be great distresses on the earth and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into the nations, and Jerusalem shall be trampled underfoot by the nations until the time of the nations are filled. Now let's not get confused. Luke 21 is not talking about the end of days. It's actually talking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So let's not get those two conflated. But it is calling out here that the people of God are going to be persecuted by a foreign enemy. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the beings of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, and that through many tribulations we will enter into the kingdom of God. Romans 8.35-37 says, And who shall separate us from the love of the Messiah? Shall pressure, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it has been written, for your sake we are killed all day long, and we are reckoned as sheep for slaughter. But in all this we are more than overcomers through him who loved us. The gospel of the Messiah is not that God will protect you as an individual or deliver you as a person from all your enemies. The gospel of God is not that your life will be happy and stress-free, and that if you should find yourself in a situation similar to Israel and Egypt, that you or even all of your loved ones will survive. That's not it. The message of the gospel is that God will be with you in the midst of it. The message is that salvation is not found on this side of the resurrection. God will see. God will hear. God will deliver. God will save. Wait, 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 no. That's wrong, that's wrong, that's not right. God has heard. God has remembered. God has seen, and God does know your affliction, and he has been, he will be, and he is with you when you experience persecution. He knows your pain. He knows your angst and the stress that besets you. 
He won't take it all away, but he will comfort, he will provide, and he will give you peace in the midst of the sorrow and horror. And he will be faithful to bring you through it and bring you to his side. And you will be brought to his side in the land of promise, in the kingdom of God on this earth, because he has already sent his deliverer, and he has crossed the sea of death and come to the other side unscathed as a new creation. And you either have or you can as well. Our God, he cares for his people who face persecution and slaughter all day long, and he has created a way from death to life. So let's not assume that God is going to save us from difficulty and hardship and that our lives will always be pleasant. Let's simply know that he has walked the same path of persecution and tribulation before us. And in that, there's comfort. Because God knows what we experience. He's been here. He's done that. And he has delivered us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Regardless of what our future circumstances may look like, we can know this to be true. For Hashem is a God of life, and seeking Him and trusting Him will lead to the path of life. And it's here that we need to be as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.